Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Today, my main goal is to convince you that coming to church is important. That may seem the silly thing to do if you're already here, but I think we need to be reminded of why we gathered. And there's many ways that I could do this to convince you that coming to church is important. One way I could do is I could share a study with you that came out last year. It was published by the Human Flourishing Program, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. And they took a survey, compared those who regularly attend church compared to those who not as regularly attend church. And what they found is that there you have reduced health benefits. You have, there's risks that are lower for you if you are a regular attender of church. They found that if you regularly attend church, you have a 33% reduced risk of death. They found you have an 84% reduced risk of suicide, a 29% reduced risk of depression, a 50% reduced risk of divorce, and there's benefits for your children, a 33% reduced risk of adolescent illegal drug use. So there you go, end of sermon, and now you know why it's important to come to church. No. That, that, that's great, but those aren't guarantees of anything. Life happens in many different ways. And I think there's a better way to convince you about why it's important that we gather together. And we're going to learn that from our passage today in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And what we're going to discover in this passage is that Jesus, our high priest, has opened a way for us so that we can draw near to God, we can hold on to eternal hope, and he's also challenged us to gather together and encourage one another. So let's find out why in this passage. Again, we're in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. You can use the blue Bible to see back in front of you if you don't have one, and you're welcome to keep that copy of God's word. But we'll also have the words on the screen. Once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Starting in verse 19, our author says, Therefore, brothers, or brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22 tells us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your immense work on our behalf for being our high priest, our representative, who has opened a way through your death so that we can draw near to you, God. I pray you would challenge us to do that, to draw near to you, 
to hold on to our hope in you, our hope for an eternal future. And God, may we respond to that good news by not neglecting to meet together, but gathering together so that we can encourage one another, stir up one another to love the good works. Lord, lead us to take this action because you are great and glorious. So Lord, as we are together now, may our focus be united in focusing on you. To borrow words from John the Baptist, may, may I decrease God so that you can increase all the more. Lord, may we see you clearly and see what you have called us to do. It's in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've been here when I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, this is normally the part of the sermon where I talk about where we've been in Hebrews and what we've talked about. But this week we have a benefit because the author does that for me. In the very first few verses of our passage, he's going to summarize what he's been talking about. So if you're looking at the outline, this is a summary of what we've covered so far. And he's going to say that our priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ, has opened the way for us. Our priest has opened the way. It's a summary, really, of the whole book, but particularly this big section we've been going through from chapter 4 through chapter 10 has been all about Jesus as our high priest who has opened a way for us to approach God. In many ways, these verses 19 through 21 are like he's saying, in conclusion, this is the main point, and then he's going to give us some application. So let's read those verses again, 19 through 21. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. He tells us, therefore, we have confidence and boldness to approach God. We spent weeks talking about what Jesus did. He died on a cross. He paid the penalty for our sins so we could be restored to God. Because of his work, we have confidence to come before our Lord. The Apostle Paul would write about this in the book of Ephesians. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he, that God realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is a reminder of things we've covered, but it's a big point. We can enter God's presence. We can do it boldly and confidently. We can do it any time that we choose. And that is an immense privilege. It's not because there's something special in us, not because we earned it, but only because of the blood of Jesus that he died on our behalf. The message of true Christianity is not just that Jesus shows us a good way to live. He, he does show us how we should act, but the message of true Christianity is that he shed his blood. He died to bring us to God. But he's not dead anymore. Verse 20 tells us in our passage that he's now has provided a new and living way for us. He's alive through faith in him. We have a way to God, a living, life-giving way. He's opened, he's consecrated. Your translation may have inaugurated a new way to God, a previously unavailable relationship with our Lord. It's something that only he, our living Savior, can do. Jesus himself said this. In John 14, he says, I am the way 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way we come to God. Our text talks about, though, that this was a way through a curtain. And you may wonder, well, what's that talking about? Well, we, we've covered this in the past few weeks. When God's people in the Old Testament worshipped him, they were at a tabernacle or a temple. And the most inner part of that tabernacle or temple, called the most holy place, there was a curtain that separated everyone from God's presence. And only one person, the high priest, could go in and only once a year. So when it says through the curtain, it says Jesus has gone into God's presence before us. We talked about this back in chapter 6. We saw that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have a hope that enters into that inner place behind the curtain. Jesus has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf. And that makes him our high priest forever. He sacrificed his body and his blood so that we would have access to God. And now nothing is in the way between us and God. If you remember the stories of the Gospels when Jesus died on the cross, I don't have this scripture up here, but if you read about his account of him dying, when he died, that curtain that was there in the temple was torn in two, showing us that now we have access to God. And so what that means in the words of verse 21 of our passage is since we have a great high priest over the house of God. We've been talking about this these past few weeks. Jesus is our great, our superior high priest. He's our representative before God. He offered the one sacrifice that is permanently needed to bring us to our Lord. This is what Christ has done for us. And maybe you're here or watching and you don't know this Savior, this Lord, who's done this work for you. He has acted in such a way, lived a perfect life, and died so that you can know God that you can call to him at any time, that you can have a living, real relationship with him. And I pray that you will seek that out if you do not know him and that you'll turn away from any sin wrong you've done that we all have done and believe and trust in him. Now, I kind of went through those verses quickly because these are things that we've talked about the past couple of weeks. And if you want to spend some more time really thinking about them, then you can watch online the sermons that we've done kind of going through those. But now our author's going to switch. He's reviewed what he's talked about, and now he's entering the part of Hebrews where he's going to apply this to our life. And today, he's going to give us three applications. He's going to say, if that's true, so what? Here are some applications because Christ has died for us, opened a way for us to God, and he is our priest. Here's what that means for our lives. If you have the outline in front of you, you'll see that we're looking at Christ's work in the past, present, and future. If you look at that outline, I've put some words in italics that talk about something that Christ has done in the past and what we should do in response, something Christ is doing now and what we should do, and something Christ will do in the future and how we should respond there. So in each of these applications, he's going to give the application, and then he's going to go right back to Jesus and say, because Jesus has done this, is doing this, and will do this. The very first application he gives us is let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. And the reason we do that is because he, Jesus, has cleansed us. He has cleansed us. 
We just talked about how we can approach God. We can go right into his presence wherever we need him and whenever we need him. While we're still alive on earth, it's not that we're physically going somewhere where God is. No, it's talking about spiritually. We can approach God in prayer. We can have a relationship with him. Keep that in mind. Let's look at that verse 22, which says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near to God because we know Christ and he has given us a true, a sincere, maybe a, a genuine, a submissive and trusting heart before our Lord. It's a call to us to have a heart that's in gratitude for what God has done. Not that we strut arrogantly into God's presence. Here I am, God. Jesus said I could come and see you. No, no, not that. But humble gratitude for what he has done. He has cleansed us. He has changed us from the inside out. He has purified us on the inside in our hearts. He's removed those evil desires, given us a heart for him so that we now want to live for God. This is what happens to those who have a relationship with Jesus. It's not just a New Testament thing. The Old Testament talks about this. Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. Again, that's Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. He sprinkles clean water. He cleans us from all our uncleanliness. Jesus has washed us clean. And so that, excuse me, that means we have full assurance. We can know that we will be received by God when we go before him. Because we're trusting in what Christ has done, not what we have done. Friends, you can know that you know God. You can have confidence. Yes, I know God, and I know what my eternal future is. I know I will go to him when I die. And the reason we can know that is because your faith doesn't depend on you. It's not, well, if I make sure I'm believing, then I know I go to heaven. No, we need to believe in Jesus, yes. But our confidence is not in the fact that we believe. Our confidence is in what Jesus has done for us. We fail, we sin, we mess up. Our faith depends on Christ. And what has he done for us? Well, in the words of our passage, we're to draw near with a true heart and full assurance. Why? Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. He has cleansed us. That sprinkle may, may make you scratch your head, but it seems the author's referring to how sacrifices worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you'd bring your animal to a priest who was going to kill it to atone, pay for your sins. And what the priest would do is take some of the blood of that animal and he'd sprinkle it on you to represent this animal died so that you can be forgiven. Well, for us, Jesus has died. And while not literally, in a spiritual sense, his blood has been sprinkled on us, his death has paid for our sins. It has been added to our account. And so if we turn away from our sins and we trust in Jesus, believe in him, then 
His blood has been added to us. This access, this ability to draw near to God is ours. And that means if we have a guilty conscience, if we feel, but I feel I've done wrong against God, then that doesn't need to condemn us because Christ has paid for that. Even if we feel far from God, Christ says that he brings us near. Back in chapter 9, we talked about how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God. So how much more will that purify our conscience? His work purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's purified our conscience, and our text says that he's washed our bodies There's some debate about what that means. Maybe it's Jesus' spiritual work. Is it talking about baptism? The, The point is, water is something that makes us clean. And in Christ, we are clean before God. This idea of being washed and clean before God shows up elsewhere in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, Such were some of you, people who were in sin, but now you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. You used to be a slave to sin and wrong desires, but now you were washed. So friends, if you're here, you have a genuine relationship with God, then Jesus has cleansed you. When God looks at you, he sees you as clean as Jesus Christ. And that, makes, that gives you the freedom to boldly approach God. That gives you the freedom to pray to God. Say, God, I can pray to you. I can talk to you. I know you will hear me because when you look at me, you don't see my sin and failure. You see the cleanness of Jesus Christ. So again, I I beg those who are here or watching, if you do not know Christ, then God doesn't see you as clean before him. He sees your dirt, your, your sin, what you have done wrong against him. He sees that. And his judgment will come. But if you turn away from that sin, believe in Christ, come to know him, then God will look at you and see Jesus. And so you can boldly approach him in prayer. If you're here, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. This means you have access to God. Anytime you want, you can go before the Lord of the universe and talk to him freely and openly. If you sin, call out to him for repentance and grace. If you feel yourself in need, then ask him for help. You do not have to be embarrassed to approach him. Because of Christ, you can draw near to God. That's the first application for us to take. The second application our author gives us is not only should we draw near to God, but he says, let us hold on to our hope. Let us hold on to our eternal hope. And why should we do this? Because he is faithful. Let us hold on to hope because he is faithful. We're told here to hold fast, tight, firm, unswervingly to the eternal hope that we confess and embrace. Let's look at verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. This is telling us we should not be moved, we should not be thrown off balance by the changing circumstances of our lives. 
as the world changes around us, we cling to faith in our God and our hope in him. Pastor Charles Spurgeon had a sermon just on this verse. And in that sermon, he said that exhortation, that that command, let us hold fast. It might as well be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. We live in such a changing age that we all need to be exhorted to be rooted and grounded, confirmed and established in the truth of God. Friends, Charles Spurgeon died over 130 years ago, but he said, we live in a changing age. We need to be rooted in God's word. How much more true is that today, that we hold on to the truth God has given us? We need deep roots, an anchor that holds us fast through the storm. Now you may say, Pastor, he says, hold on to our hope. What hope is he talking about? Well, the hope is the good news that we celebrate, that Jesus saves sinners. That's the hope we hold on to, that even though I did sin, have sin, will sin, Jesus saves sinners. We need to be constantly reminded of that truth. We need to remind ourselves of that truth. We need an unswerving embrace. This is what Jesus has done. This is where my hope is based, in him. We're trusting in God's promises, clinging to his truth. By saying this, our author is actually just repeating something he already said. Way back at the beginning of this kind of main part of the book of Hebrews about Jesus being our high priest, about Jesus being the one who allows us to come to God. At the very beginning, he told us why we should do it. He says in verse, chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What should we do? Let us hold fast our confession. He's repeating himself again. He already told us this is what we should do. Hold on to him. And now he comes back to it again. He's telling us we should boldly cling to our identity in Christ. I know Christ and he is mine. I'm a part of his people, his church. And yes, there's a lot wrong in the church as a whole. There's many who claim the name of Christ and do not live up to that claim. There's problems in every church you could find. Problems in this church, yes. But in Christ's gospel, in his good news, that he dies for sinners, in that truth, we find hope. This holding fast to our hope also tells us that we should know what we believe and why we believe it. Because that knowledge will give us hope. It will give us the the drive we need to persevere to continue in our faith, the confidence to keep going. And that hope comes from trust in God's character. Our text said, because he is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. He can be trusted. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. His son Christ is faithful. He keeps his word. He is effective at bringing us home to be with God at the end of our life. He is effective at permanently winning us a right relationship with God. He is one that we can trust. Near the end of his sermon, Pastor Spurgeon said, if he is faithful who has promised, if he has kept his word to you, if he has helped you in your trouble, if he has sustained your heart under burdens, 
if he's comforted you in the dark hour of trial, if till this moment you have proven the power of prayer, you've been able to prove the wisdom of God's providence and control, if you've proved the truth of the sacred Lord, if he has been faithful to you, then deal with my Lord as he has dealt with you. If God has been faithful to you in your past, friends, brothers and sisters, then trust him to be faithful in the present and in the time to come. You may be going through an extreme trial, a period of great struggle and suffering, and you may think, this isn't like what I went through before. Why would God be faithful in this? But we'll remember where he has been faithful in the past. And may that knowledge of, but I remember he did that for me. May that be the motivation that you need to keep going because that you know God will bring his children home to be with him. And I believe that I am his child, not really because of something I did, because I trust in what Christ has done for me. And if he's done that and God's helped me before, that he can help me now. If you wrestle with doubts about that, then, then think about your past. Try to remember those times when God was faithful to you. Sometimes in struggle, though, it's really hard for us to do that, to look back and think, oh, yeah, yeah, he did that in my life. So if you're struggling with that, then, then take some time to look at his word. Read the Bible and see all these times God was faithful to his people. Remind yourself of his faithfulness to his promises. Trust him and hold on to that hope. And I have more good news for you about that. You don't have to do that alone. You don't have to do it alone because the third application we have is that we are to encourage one another. Let us encourage one another. And we do that because he, Jesus, will come again. Let us encourage one another because he will come again. Verses 24 and 25 call us to encourage, motivate, stir up, spur on one another to love and good deeds and works among our fellow believers. And the way we do that is by not neglecting or giving up meeting and gathering together. Verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we're going to persevere in this life, if we're going to remain faithful to God, then we need one another in order to do that. One scholar, David Chapman, put it this way, community encouragement towards perseverance requires being together. And what that means is if we're going to encourage one another, and if we're going to persevere and stay faithful to God, that requires that we are together. In order to draw near to God, in order to hold on to our hope in Him, we need the encouragement of other believers in Christ. And that happens when we are together. There's some encouragement to us even here that even in the first century, there was a problem with people skipping church. As he says here, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Apparently, some claim the name of Christ, but they wouldn't gather together with those who are worshiping God. We may wonder why. Why weren't they coming? Well, we don't know. He doesn't actually tell us. We can make some guesses. Maybe they were avoiding persecution. Maybe people were uh, punishing them or, or 
speaking ill of them or treating them harshly because they were a Christian. Maybe that's why they didn't gather together. Maybe it was inconvenient for them, the place where they were gathered. Maybe it was just hard to get to. Maybe it took time away from other things they enjoyed doing or needed to do or felt they needed to do. One interesting proposal I saw someone had was reminding us who this book was written to. This is the book of the Hebrews. So our author is writing to Hebrew, Jewish Christians. Maybe they didn't want to gather together because there were Gentile Christians there. These were people who had a different outlook on life from them. They had different thoughts, different philosophies, perhaps even different politics, different views on world affairs. And maybe they didn't want to get together with people they were so different from. But it doesn't matter because God calls believers to assemble together. A church is to be united by Jesus Christ, not by its culture, not by its preferences. This has been a struggle and a challenge for the church throughout its history. The Protestant reformer John Calvin, he points out how hard this is. He says, the words are kind of odd here, but I'll explain his point. He says, unless a similarity of habits or some allurements or advantages draw us together, it's very difficult even to maintain a continual concord among ourselves. I know it's a lot of words. He's just saying it's hard to get together with people unless we have a really good reason to get together. And so his conclusion is extremely needed, therefore, by all of us, is this admonition to be stimulated to love and not to envy, to not separate from those to whom God has joined to us, but to embrace with brotherly kindness all those who are united to us in faith. Yes, it's hard to get together with people who maybe you're different on the outside, but we are not to separate from those that God has brought us together with. What are we to do instead? We're not to neglect to meet together. What are we to do? Our text says we are to encourage one another. Encourage one another. We do that by speaking God's truth to each other. We speak what God has said to strengthen one another's faith. Again, this is something that our author in Hebrews has already talked about. Back in chapter 3, he said, Exhort or encourage one another as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We encourage others, say, I, I see you're thinking about this. Don't do that. This is the way that we should follow God together, you and me. In our passage, it says we should do this all the more as we see the day drawing near, as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. I don't think that's a call for us to, to hunt for signs, to look and think, well, is it coming much sooner than we thought? Uh, every day brings us one day closer to Christ's return. And so every day we should be encouraging one another more and more. The reason we gather together, the reason we encourage others is because Christ is coming back. And we need to encourage one another until we get to that day. If we don't gather together as a church, that's often fatal for a faith someone claims. Someone says, I'm a Christian, but then they don't spend time with God's people. That profession of faith often doesn't last. A rejection of God's people can and does ultimately reveal that one has rejected God say, I love God, but I don't spend time with the church, then you don't really love God. You think you do, but God sent his son to die for the church. That's who he loves and cares for. And if you kick that to the side, then you don't have the same priorities God does. And so I don't know how you can claim 
that you love him. He calls us here that don't put the church aside. Instead, gather together, encourage one another together, long for his return. Now, maybe you hear this and this sounds very extreme to you. You may say, Pastor, does God really care where I'm spending a few hours on a Sunday morning? Is he really that concerned about it? Is that the most important thing in the world? Why does the author of this book take time to say this? It kind of flows against our culture's view of things. It flows against an American or an individualistic mindset. I should decide what I want. Why does it matter if I get together with other people? My relationship with God is between me and Jesus. But the message of the Bible is that a church family, a church family is essential. It's essential, not optional. It's been this way since the very beginning of the New Testament church. In the book of Acts, shortly after the New Testament church begins, we read this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The church, the people gathered together so they could study and hear from God's word, so they could spend time with each other, so they could grow spiritually and so that they could pray together. This is the calling for all of God's people to gather together, to hear from his word, to pray, to grow, to encourage one another. And This verse doesn't use this phrase, but many others do. There's an interesting phrase you see in the Bible, particularly the New Testament. One another. One another. We're told to do a lot of things for one another. And gathering together in the church is the best place to practice that. Let me give you a couple examples. Romans 12 says, love one another with brotherly affection. I didn't italicize this one, but I'll do one another in showing honor. The book of Ephesians says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And you may say, great, pastor, but shouldn't we do that to everyone? Well, yes, but the passage that really stands out to me is this one from 1 Thessalonians. And if you've taken a church membership class with me recently, you may remember me talking about this. But look at this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Paul says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do good, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See that he makes a distinction between these two groups. There's some people who are your one another's and then there's everyone else. Now in this case, you're to do the same thing for both. You're to always seek to do good to everyone, yes, but he especially focuses on this other group, one another. Who is that other group? I would say it's our church family. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ that we see every single week. They are the one another's. They are the ones that we are to practice these commands of the New Testament toward and for. God has made us to need other people. We need a church family. We need consistent involvement with it for our own soul's sake. Our passage today is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you look in your Bible one verse down, I also have it on the screen, but if you go just one verse below, verse 25, where he's just talking about we should gather together, the very next thing he says is, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now we'll take time to talk about that next week, but when people read this letter, they didn't take breaks every week like we do. They read it all together. And so neglecting to meet together, our author says that is sinning deliberately. It's the very next thing that he talks about here. Part of meeting together is honoring to God. So sinning deliberately would be all the things he just talked about. If we're not drawing near to God, well, yeah, we'd say that's, that's sinning deliberately. If we're not holding on to our hope in God, okay, yeah, that's sinning deliberately. But he also says, if we're neglecting to meet together and encourage one another, that is sinning deliberately. Being at church is serious. It is good for us. God designed us for it. And it's a sin against him not to. Friends, if you've committed to a church family, and I hope that you have, or if you haven't, I would challenge you to do that. Find a church family to commit to and be involved with. If you've committed to this one, then we expect you to be here every week. That's not because we want your money. That's not because I need to see a crowd every time I get out here. No, that's not it at all. Because we are called to encourage one another. You don't need to be here to earn points to get to heaven. You need to be here because God has said, this is how you respond in love to me. One of the best ways you can encourage others is by being here and by being together. Now, I know that we all lead very busy lives. We have a lot going on. There's many other things that could take our time and attention. Look, you can go online and you can find hundreds of pastors who preach better than I do, but you can only be encouraged the way God intends by actually gathering together with his people, being in his church when believers gather. Our goal we should strive for here as a church as a whole is that every member is here every week. That's our hope. Every member of our church is here every week. Now I know, I know that life happens. We deal with sickness or some other medical issue, or perhaps we're caring for someone who is sick or in need, and that keeps us from church. Sometimes maybe some weather event is too much for us to get there, or maybe it wouldn't be safe for us to try to make it to church. I understand that. We have the occasional vacation. Maybe we have a work responsibility, a family emergency, a special event. We all remember two years ago with a pandemic, we made some decisions to try to support public health, be a good member of our community. I, I know for speaking for myself, uh, being now a parent with a young child, I understand in a very fresh way how difficult and hard it is to get to church on Sunday. I'm very grateful for my wife because I have to be here. You know, I can't say, well, the baby's acting up, so I can't be there. No, I, I have to, but I understand how difficult it is for family to get here. But I hope you see in all of those things I said, those are exceptional circumstances. They're not the norm. They are things that are out of the ordinary and we should recognize them as such. If we have to miss church, we should recognize this is not normal. This is not the way it should be. Our default posture should be, it's Sunday, I'm going to be at the church that I've committed to. I'm going to be there for the weekly worship gathering, unless God has done something that prevents me 
from being there. I read an article this week. uh, It's actually a few years old. It was published by the Gospel Coalition by a woman named Susan Rockwell. She was writing to young mothers. You can see the title was Five Reasons to Keep Going to Church with Baby Brain. And so it's for uh, young mothers, but I think these principles are true for all of us. Why should we go to church even when it's hard, even when it's difficult? Well, because you're not going just for yourself. And our goal is to encourage others. Our goal is to get our our family there as well. We come because church is about more than a sermon. I'm grateful you're here listening to me now, but this isn't the extent of what church is about. Your presence encourages others. Even if you don't talk to someone, you may look across the room, I'm glad that person over there is here today. Oh, it's good to see that that person's here. Maybe I won't be able to talk to them today, but their presence encourages me. There's the realization that those who stop going don't always start back. If we make our norm not being at church, then it's very hard to come back. And this was the one that really stuck with me and the reason why I brought this up. Some church is better than no church. Maybe you're in a place, like this is particularly written to young mothers, and I understand that. Maybe uh, this author, she said she had several young children. She said, I don't think I've heard a full sermon in over 10 years. I get Hit that, I understand. But she thought, you know, just the little bit I'm able to get and the getting children there, that's better than not being there at all. So I want to unpack this a bit more for us. I'm going to take a moment right now and, and I'll, I'll be with you all in a second, but I'd like to specifically talk to those of you who are watching online right now. And I want to say thank you for watching. I'm so grateful that you are watching but notice that word that I'm using. The word I'm using is watching. You are watching the service. You're not joining us. And we try to be very careful with those words there. To join us here, you would actually have to be here in the room with us. We're so grateful we're able to provide this for you. I'm incredibly thankful for those who work in the the tech team back there who are able to provide this live stream for you. It was a lifesaver for us during the pandemic. I'm so grateful that we have this. It's wonderful that you can watch with us. But as great as technology is, it's not the same as actually being with God's people. It's wonderful you want to hear from God's word. And I know that there's some of you who are watching that you don't have another option. This is the only way that you can interact with any of God's people, maybe for a health reason or you're taking care of someone. And I know that some of you want to be here in church, and you can't, and I understand that. But some of you, I think, need to be challenged that you're not really getting the full experience there. You should feel that something is missing, that you want to be a part of what's happening with God's people, encouraging one another in a church. You should feel that I miss, I miss it. I miss being with God's people, and I want to be there. Now, for those of you who are here, physically present in the building, I'm so grateful that you are here. Thank you for encouraging me and encouraging one another with your presence here today. But I will point something out to you going back to our passage. Our passage doesn't say not neglect to meet together, but show up to church and sit down. That's not the words that are there. The words in the passage are encouraging one another. The verse before says we're stirring up one another to love and good works. You don't get extra spiritual bonus points just because you manage to sit in a chair in a church on Sunday morning. I don't think that's something God keeps track of 
up in heaven. We gather together, yes, to worship God together. We gather so we can hear God's word preached, but we also gather so that we can encourage one another. And if you think, I've got this because I show up at church, I sit down for the sermon, and then I head out the door, so I'm good. That, that's not what this is talking about. We need to take the time to actually encourage your brothers and sisters while you are here. I found a, a powerful article about this this week. Somebody actually sent it to me. It was by a man named, I think it's Jonathan Tajarks. And this man, unfortunately, is dying of a rare type of cancer. And this is incredibly difficult for him because he has a two-year-old son. And so in the article, he talks about how even though his time is almost out, he spends a lot of time with the people of his church. He says sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes he doesn't get along with everyone. It takes out a lot of his time and he doesn't have a lot left. But this is the reason he said why he does it. I don't know how long I will be there for my son. All I can do is make the most of the time I have left. And that means investing in other people so that they can be there for him. Friends, that's part of what we're doing when we gather together. We are encouraging one another so that even when we're gone, our church family can continue to encourage one another. We invest in one another. We support one another. This is why we gather. Coming to church is important. We respond rightly to what Jesus has done by making it a priority. Look at this. This is, he spent chapter four through 10 in the book of Hebrews talking about Jesus. And now he hits application. One of the big things he hits is be with God's people, gather together, encourage one another. He tells us that our high priest, Jesus Christ has opened a way for us so we can draw near to God. So we can hold on to our hope. And Jesus has done this so that we can gather and encourage one another. For those of us who are, who are here, since we're here together, let's encourage one another now by together praising the one who has done all this for us, the one who has cleansed us, the one who is faithful to us, and the one we are waiting for, the one we are longing, who will soon come back. So friends, let's worship Jesus Christ because he alone is worthy.